Welcome to yet another episode of Shortcast Over Coffee. Today, my guest is Dr. Sanjay Nagral. Dr. Nagral is a leading Indian surgeon and a medical ethics expert. He is a hepatobiliary and pancreatic surgery specialist based in Mumbai, where he serves as a professor and a postgraduate teacher. Dr. Nagral has published extensively on surgery, public health, and medical ethics issues. and this episode is going to be an in-depth discussion on all these issues please do like share and subscribe this channel as it will help us get such great guests on and for all the audio files do check out the show shortcast over coffee on top podcast platforms like spotify apple etc now without further ado let's dive right in dr nagral thank you so much for joining the podcast uh thank you very much thank you bala it's uh... nice to be uh with you and look forward to this uh, conversation absolutely uh, likewise uh dr nagral you have been uh, in the field for uh, over 25 to 30 years would you like to uh, tell the audience uh, a bit about how you got started and what you do right so i was a uh, like any other kid growing up in uh, the india of the uh 80s uh after of course school and science education early science education uh, uh there was of course the choice was at that time was engineering or medicine right and uh, so i gravitated into medicine one reason of course was that uh, my parents uh were doctors uh, and uh, i I, and and at that time uh, really as i said uh, be, being becoming a doctor was uh, considered uh, uh, something very uh, important and good to do not that it has changed much uh, but uh, uh, i i i because of the of of this kind of uh, family background and uh, as i said the, the classic uh, competitive uh, students of that time it was either medicine or engineering iit or otherwise so that's where i landed up and uh, so i studied in mumbai uh i went on to do surgery uh, that is something i look back and ask myself what is it that uh, again uh, made me uh, gravitate towards that kind of field and you know i think uh, you know, it was uh, for many male medical students at that time uh, surgery was seemed like a a classic choice we also had of course a lot of very towering uh, impressive personalities in uh, in the surgical field in the medical college so i guess it was a bit of uh, you know uh, being attracted uh, uh, looking at their personalities uh so i i that's how i landed up with the surgical career i did my post graduation then i went on uh to teach actually in the medical college along with clinical work uh and then i developed uh, an interest in uh, liver surgery uh partly because of early exposure working with people who were interested and that was around the time when there was a lot of early excitement about transplantation of the liver uh, uh in in india which the transplantation had started in the west uh, uh earlier uh, but at that time there was 
no law uh, which enabled uh, transplantation in India. There was only kidney transplantation. So I, uh, I got interested, uh, curious, and then finally ended up uh, uh, traveling uh, to train liver transplantation. And this was in the UK in a large hospital in London. Uh, where I saw, worked, participated, uh, and actually uh, became a part of the surgical team in a large, uh, large hospital there, and it was very exciting because this was the field of uh, cadaveric transplantation, or what is uh, also called disease donation, uh, and I saw a highly organized uh, system uh, because this was the NHS and the UK. And we would travel all over the UK uh, in small flights and uh, go and uh, procure uh, organs from those who had been declared brain dead or brainstem dead and uh, would bring the organ back and transplant them uh, in the hospital. And clearly, it was a very successful project. Uh, clearly, it was saving lives. And uh, therefore, uh, uh, it seemed like something that India should uh, move towards because obviously we had our share of uh, patients with uh, dying of liver disease. So I came back uh, spending around two years in the UK and uh, I actually tried to, I did join back the public hospital in Mumbai where I was working and teaching, spent another one and a half years there trying to see whether we can establish uh, transplantation there. And that's another uh, sort of discussion as to which I can come back to later that why is it that the public healthcare system in India has uh, not been able to uh, develop uh, uh, transplantation, especially of organs like the liver and heart. Now, there are lots of transplants being done in India in the private sector, but Somehow the public sector has not been able to take it up. And then I uh, I left. Um, I joined the private sector hospital. Uh, what I also did was that I worked part-time in, in, again, a large public hospital in Mumbai. So for a period of almost, uh, almost 20 years, I would spend time both in the private and public sector in Mumbai. Hospitals... Uh, I would say half an hour to 45 minutes away from each other, but two different worlds. And it's quite a schizophrenic kind of existence. Uh, you know, those who have seen both the worlds, those who have worked in both the worlds will maybe understand what I'm saying. But really one of the uh, astounding features of healthcare, uh, at least in large Indian cities today is the kind of difference one can see between the, the large uh, private hospitals, what is now termed as corporate hospitals, whatever that term means, and hospitals which are public hospitals. Uh, and these are cheek by jaw, side to side. Uh, so I, I was working in that fashion. And then, uh, well, so uh, coming to... Uh, why and how I decided to start talking and writing about uh, some of the issues I saw around me. And uh, this is partly, uh, you can say it was a combination of maybe 
in in my early career of course i had connected with uh, several uh, uh movements uh, in india which were articulating uh, ethics uh, some of them were articulating right to healthcare uh, so i was connected with them i was working with them but also i saw in my work uh uh stark uh, stark differences uh to the extent that uh, we were almost uh, you know uh, to put it a little uh, simplistically but i think it, it captures it uh, quite well and i therefore i am using that uh, bit of a cliche that you know the the poor in in india and i think that still holds are grossly undertreated uh whereas uh, on the other hand the rich uh are often overtreated uh so this is probably a good description of what is happening and i bothered me i started uh, articulating it then i started writing and to my uh to my surprise i realized that people want to know more i started getting a response and i started a a column in a, a mumbai uh, newspaper uh, which is quite well read uh, the newspaper also was uh, very well read and what happened was that then it then we hit covid and during covid i was writing every week um and uh, that column garnered a lot of uh, support feedback started getting more invites to write uh in the meanwhile we also some of us who were writing we were also writing in the academic space so for example the bmj the british medical journal was also uh, uh interested in knowing about what's happening in healthcare in south asia and then one of the areas they wanted to uh to uh for people to develop and write is uh, uh why was there so much corruption in healthcare and uh, so we wrote on that uh, and actually ended up writing a, a book and this book uh, created a stir as you can imagine it's a it's a book uh, on healthcare corruption in india which i co-edited with uh, uh two fairly senior and well known co-authors uh, one of them uh, was the ex uh, health secretary of india and uh, he passed away uh, this year mr keshav desiraju and the other was a very senior surgeon colleague from uh, delhi dr samir anandi and we actually took took a deeper dive into uh, these uh, what is typically talked about as a scandal but really is a system system challenge and uh, uh the word corruption usually connotes some petty kind of uh, exchange of money under the table but i think in healthcare it is some different dimensions so i started so this book came out and then of course as i said uh, started writing uh also a little bit on social media but uh, i think that's where i am now i am uh, writing regularly uh i'm still not quite sure uh how it resonates i mean it seems to resonate amongst people uh but amongst my colleagues in the profession i think uh, of course there's a question mark on 
how it uh, how they respond to it in the sense like i see a wide spectrum of responses from the clear hostility uh sometimes very sharp hostility when we read, wrote the book for example we had this huge backlash uh, on from our colleagues who said that why are you uh, washing dirty linen in public you know that's the standard trope uh, incidentally many of them had not even read the book but it was a huge campaign and some of the calls for a boycott etc uh, i had to write back to some of the women knew saying that first read the book you know this is not a scandal book this is not a steamy uh, sort of expose that you may be thinking oh it's a deep dive into the into the way the historical process the the compulsions the the inherent uh, conflicts of interest in a highly privatized system etc uh so yes this has been uh, a journey i don't uh, think that i have often when i look back at my writing uh, it's it's not that i've always uh, said something highly original this has been written about uh, both globally and in the indian space maybe uh, it strikes a chord partly because i have i am an insider and i think that to an extent matters because there is a lot of academic analysis of uh, healthcare and uh, even uh, healthcare uh, corruption or uh, the the way the private sector has grown you know what might be called a very predatory kind of private sector but because i was an insider i guess it had uh, uh, it had a bigger resonance also i think uh, there were some areas of uh, of this uh, on this topic where i, I being every day involved uh, could maybe dissect a little better so how do doctors think what are the pressures what are the conflicts of interest etc so maybe that's maybe a little different from some of the other writing but a lot of the things i have written about i have been uh, known i have shared a lot of anecdotes uh, actual patient experiences uh, around me in covid i did a lot of that uh, and that seemed to also uh, resonate a lot because i talked about what i see around me and uh, you know so i think right now uh, this is where i will stop and maybe we can take a deeper dive into some of the areas yeah absolutely uh, uh, you mentioned that uh, the poor in india are grossly undertreated and the rich are overtreated and i wanted to sort of get an insider's perspective uh, someone who has worked both in india and the uk what were the differences as a doctor that you saw in the uk that were completely different from india yeah so i think first of all let me start by saying that uh, these comparisons between countries of course have a uh, uh, we must acknowledge have some limitations partly size of the country etc having said that our comparison with the uk is very important because we 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 were ruled by the british they laid down a pathway for us uh, during after independence the famous board committee which almost recommended something like a nhs in in india and one of the big questions uh, is why did we go to another path pathway uh, in terms of how we have developed so the uk as you know is the is the nhs and i am i'm not going to analyze the nhs so it's very well known but what i saw 
was first of all uh, uh, and which astounded me was uh, completely uh, a system which does not ask you about money your background at the point of entry when you seek healthcare so i think that is something very different uh, from what we see in india and some other countries the second was a high level of trust uh, by ordinary citizens high level of participation they almost uh, feel that the nhs is something that they want to protect uh also i saw that the the average doctor uh, who uh, sets out to be a professional in the uk is not primarily coming for money uh, a lot of it has got to do with science professionalism and i think that also matters and the system also is not uh, making heroes out of money uh making a example out of money but making an example out of good work scientific practice etc uh so this uh, this umbrella of care uh and the responsibility taken by the state and the system to offer care so just to give an example uh so you know in india let's say you have a patient who is critically ill in a hospital and has to be transferred to another hospital and that happens all the time here both in the public system sometimes in the private system the entire onus of the transfer today is on the patient or the family so they are told okay you get an ambulance and you take sir and and you know sometimes there is a bed arranged or there may not even be a bed arranged there may be just told to you take them to a bigger hospital you know and uh, then then the ambulance is roaming from place to place whereas in the nhs if the and they do transfer very often it is the responsibility of the hospital they will ensure that there is a bed available in the referral center they will be providing an ambulance they will ensure that you are safe in that travel and i want to immediately bring one more point which is i when i bring it up because this is often the subject of discussion in india which is that everybody has this notion that oh but the nhs has huge waiting list uh so i must debunk this waiting list uh, you know confusion so of course there are waiting lists in india i see a patient today in my private practice and the patient needs surgery i can do it tomorrow so that seems to appeal to people that you know there is no waiting list here but the reason that system does it where they have a waiting list is two one is that it's a system which strongly bears on uh, 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 believes in triaging right so they give priority to those who need emergency or in early surgery they are not the system is not geared to sort of uh, just look purely at so called efficiency uh, and efficiency in india means if you have the money uh, it's efficient right so therefore if you need a knee replacement uh it's never an urgency right so they may tell you okay as per our current list you will get it after 6 months uh because it's an organized system which is prioritizing other things and anyway many of these procedures don't need to be done immediately right uh in india uh, of course because it is the private sector and clearly there is a huge incentive to perform the procedure they will do it tomorrow or day after right now that is perceived as efficiency uh 
without perhaps understanding that in an emergency in the UK, uh, if you need a procedure as complicated as, let's say, a bypass, an emergency bypass for the heart or even a liver transplant, they will do it, no questions asked, no money involved. Here you, in an emergency in the night, if you arrive at a hosp private hospital in India, at 1 a.m., you may be told to pay a, pay a deposit of 2 lakh rupees. So that's what it is. So I think, therefore, uh, that's the strength of that system. Uh, and that's a mystery because if you look at the board committee, if you look at the early days post-independence, we, we inherited so many institutions from the from the British, right? Uh, so why did we not inherit the idea of an NHS? And I think that's uh, that's been a subject of uh, great curiosity for me. I've attempted to write on it. I've actually asked scholars and I've asked colleagues, including historians, that where do you think we swerved away? Because very clearly, uh, after the initial decade or so, we uh, chose to go to a system which was so-called mixed so-called mixed, which means we developed the public uh, health infrastructure, but clearly very early started developing a private sector. And now, of course, in the last two, three decades, uh, built a huge private sector. And, and I'm sure, again, this figure has maybe uh, come to your notice and people know this, but just to repeat, India is, and which people don't appreciate, that India is the most privatized of healthcare systems in the world, even more than the U.S., and I'm talking of what what private the the highest form of privatization, which is out of pocket payment, right? Uh, and insurance based payment now to an extent, but out of pocket payment. Uh, India is the most privatized. This is where we have reached. But there is another important thing, and again, this is important for uh, certainly for citizens to understand, which is that, and I'll come to the view on this from the medical profession later. But we are also one of the least regulated. So there is a feeling that, you know, there are lots of rules, laws. But, you know, you have to just talk to the uh, doctor in the U.S. And, you know, uh, I have seen the U.S. system from very close. Of course, it's it's a private system and there's huge challenges. I know that. I know that with experience of my own family members, etc. But it's highly regulated. Uh, whereas we have a strange combination of a highly privatized system which is also very limited regulation uh so just again to give an example today i decide you know i have this brainwave today that look i have some money and i want to start a hospital so i can just go somewhere buy a piece of land and start a hospital uh, nobody's going to ask me uh, why are you starting a hospital here? How many hospitals are there in that area? Uh, what is the need? Okay, if there is a need, what sort of hospital should you be building? Uh, I can start yet another large private hospital. And I can, there are cities in India where you will see that on one street, there are four large hospitals. Now, uh, you know, uh, if you look at it from the viewpoint of planning and access, what does it mean? Yeah. So I think this is where uh, what I talk about regulation. There are, of course, now 
uh, we are talking of standards, we are talking of rules. Uh, but COVID was an example, right? Uh, where you know the the government actually had to step in and uh, cap fees, which means that otherwise there is no rationalization of fees. I, I mean, this is an open secret that in India's private sector, fees, there is nothing like rationalization of fees. I do not have to explain rationally in detail why something is charged in the way it is charged. Of course, now there is pushback. Of course, now uh, there is an attempt to rationalize and structure it. But really, uh, uh, so here is what I, I say that even if it is a privatized system, uh, in healthcare generally and parts of the world which is insurance-based, there is a control of sorts, either from the payee who is the insurance and the US, for example, is an example of insurance-based healthcare. But also, uh, there's one more thing which has uh, been lacking which is that there is the consumer resistance. Uh, and that is, again, classically uh, explained by economists uh, that healthcare is a sector where consumer resistance is the lowest. And the way it is explained, and I think it's true, is that when it comes to your own health, when it comes to a crisis especially, your ability to offer resistance is very low. First of all, you are intimidated. Then you are scared. You are. It's a. It's an emergency crisis. You don't want to displease the doctor or the hospital because you feel that there may be pushback. So consumer resistance is also very low. Uh, so this combination and the state, the state's ability to control, uh, either is structurally low or uh, they don't want to control. Only in COVID, for example, uh, they capped uh, the prices of ICO beds. And do you know that there was a medical association in my state, in Maharashtra, who went to took them to court, saying that, how can you cap charges? And one there's a court judgment from here which says that, oh, but uh, this is a private hospital. And uh, in private sector, how can you cap charges? The court also said that. So a crisis of the magnitude of COVID, uh, there was this idea that, so what, you know, you can uh, charge what you want. Now, by the way, we would quickly add that since there were capping of charges, uh, at least there was a structure in place. So after COVID in this state, because of a lot of activism, uh, people have been returned money. I mean, thousands of cases who were overcharged and they have been returned money. So this is the level of uh, kind of dysfunctional, unregulated system which we have come to. And uh, again, we can look at this, but I think the big question here is what is the role of the profession? You know, what are we? Are we part of the uh, system which is, uh, which is uh, basically profit-driven? Or are we a third party which also needs to look at our patient's interests. And I think that is where key, that's a key point at which uh, uh, we are, you know, that the medical profession needs to decide where do they stand? Because obviously there is pushback now. 
governments are increasingly interested so they are trying to intervene many governments have started capping charges there is right to healthcare bills being passed uh which is opposed by the medical profession and it is astounding if you think about it it's shocking why should a right to healthcare bill uh, be opposed by medical professionals you know as a doctor if my ordinary citizens have a right to healthcare it should be a great idea right because it allows us to benefit and treat our fellow citizens but there is opposition there is opposition from the indian medical association and then then you begin to dig deeper and you realize that there are huge conflicts of interest and we can talk about that but i think that's a big challenge uh the way it has progressed if if the citizen gets empowered if costs are control uh it affects my practice or it affects my income and that's the contradiction which is going to be the biggest challenge for us Mm. yeah people who oppose uh, right to healthcare uh, uh, the doctors should also realize that doctors also eventually become patients at one point or the other right yeah, yeah. so i mean yes of course uh, but you know i have said that but you know doctors are largely in india are uh, privileged and therefore for that matter the the real uh, well to do section they they feel they are they are privileged they are uh, insulated from all this is partly failing and i'll tell you why it is partly failing because when they actually are on the other side uh sometimes they realize uh what a challenge this is uh you know i give this example it's happened to people i know so i have been writing about the lack of emergency care in india it's it's in a very sad sad state now it may not resonate with you if you read that that you know we, we have poor emergency care in india so for example india has an epidemic of road traffic accidents one of the highest in the world right now you may be well to do but you can be trapped in a accident one hour from bombay two hours from bombay uh you can be involved in an accident and that is when you realize that when you don't get an ambulance you don't get help you die because you don't get care uh in that first golden hour that is when probably you realize that look we what is the point of having state of the art into inverted commas hospitals in big cities when one hour from the city you can die of bleeding so i think that is uh, people are uh, they realize when it comes to their own in covid people realize this so the first time in in at least in mumbai and i suspect happened in many other cities uh the well to do privileged realize that what does it mean not to get a hospital bed or to wait to get a hospital bed i i got hundreds of calls and some of them were people with mild covid uh didn't even need hospitalization they would call and say i'm not getting a bed do something you know what is going on now you know of course uh, that's a challenge but every day in this country ordinary people have faced the same challenge being going from hospital to hospital there are stories every day in newspapers but we don't connect to those uh, because we know that it's not going to happen to us or at least we believe it's not going to happen to us and it probably doesn't happen to us on a day to day basis but it happened in covid and 
you know, I wrote about this and I said, look, you know, this is the time. But, you know, interestingly, Mumbai, you know, maybe you've heard of the Mumbai model. So the Mumbai Municipal Corporation got into the act of having a centralized, uh, what they call war room or something. And they put together. So they connected all hospitals for beds. But the moment COVID is over, it's gone. Now, it has the same application for other emergencies, for, uh, let's say, road traffic accidents, trauma, but it's gone. So, so that's where we are. And I think this is, this is also the challenge that for those who can, who can understand, analyze this, maybe even make a difference, uh, feel that it doesn't affect them. Uh, not just that, but, you know, when I started my career, uh, there was a lot of middle class people who would access healthcare in public hospitals. A substantive number. That's gone now. I can tell you that nobody I knew uh, during COVID, yeah, across the spectrum, the very well-to-do, the upper middle class, the lower middle class, whatever way you classify them, actually ever got admitted to a, a COVID hospital or a COVID ward in a public hospital. They all managed. Some of them got admitted and within two days, they got themselves transferred out uh, because they perceived that I, I am not sure that the care was really inferior. Majority of COVID cases didn't really need huge care, but certainly when they needed intensive care, they perceived that. Uh, so I think even the middle class now doesn't access public hospitals and therefore it is. So I the, the, the big government hospital, the corporation hospital that I worked in, in a suburb of Mumbai, I, I, I retired very recently. But so we look back at, you know, uh, we used to get a lot of railway accident victims. We've actually analyzed a lot of that and we've got a paper on that also. But it was a very interesting piece of data which my resident doctors used to tell me. They used to say that in the casualty, if it was a first-class patient, you know, Bombay strains have a first-class and a second-class, they would come and they would be whisked away by their relatives to a nearby private hospital. It was the second class patient whom we would be treating. So there's this clear uh, sort of because, and I don't blame them. I'm not at all suggesting that I don't blame them. Honestly, uh, today, if I have a illness, I, sorry, I feel sorry to say this, but I will not access a public hospital for an illness. So I think this is the challenge. And uh, so the only value today of public hospitals in India for the connected and the those who are influential uh, is uh, for education. So medical education still, uh, people would prefer public institutions. But otherwise, as centers for healthcare, and even the political class, right? I mean, when is the last time one saw, I mean, there was a news item once that in Chhattisgarh, uh, IS officer actually took treatment in a public hospital. There was a news item as if it's some rare occurrence. So, you know, so that's where we are. And I think uh, it's 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 a complex challenge. And there are, I mean, I'm not here to sort of say that, you know, people don't have the right to access the care they want to. Of course, they have the right, you know. The question is, what is it? What does it mean collectively? 
yeah yeah i can i do have a personal experience where a close family member of mine uh, who was living in mumbai uh, had this challenge of getting access to a bed and uh, her son tried extremely hard and you know in one way they were privileged and they did find her a bed but unfortunately she she passed away so yeah i think when you talk about it, it deeply resonates with me as well um doctor you talked about uh, india being indian healthcare system being hugely privatized and i just want to understand this a little bit more uh, you know i live in the us and there is no concept of government medical college or public healthcare here in general you know everything is privatized but in india there are medical colleges you know if you have uh, if you are met with an accident or got injured the first thing they do is to transfer to a public medical college uh, so when you say india is more privatized than the us can you explain me what you actually mean by that yeah so first of all us of course uh, you know we need to define uh, what is private and public but so the us i understand and i have uh, a sort of never worked in a long man but i have seen us hospitals i've spent time so you know uh, 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 you're right that most of them are run by private entities right but they have been uh, incorporated into a, a system so uh, there so in the us for example my understanding is uh, that if you have an emergency uh, if you go to the nearest big hospital they will not refuse to treat you uh, uh, because you are from a poor section of society there, there may be inherent biases is i'm aware of that but uh so there is a sense of public accountability so let me put it that way also of course insurance covers uh, a significant proportion of american citizen i'm i'm completely aware that uh, there is a significant proportion is not covered yeah uh when we now talk about india so so the insurance penetration uh, first of all is still extremely low i'm talking of private individual insurance or employee insurance now on the other hand uh, most ordinary citizens including the poorest of the poor uh, when they need even day to day healthcare they go to a private doctor why do they do that because private doctors are accessible um they it seems that the waiting periods to see the doctor will be low they are near their house uh they are more convenient i'm talking now talking of family doctors so if you go to the so in the slums of mumbai uh 50% are in the slums there are lots of general practitioners who serve people literally next door so the so the only reason they will come to a, a hospital is if it's something significant now uh, these are all private doctors there are private dispen- uh, there are public dispensaries of the mumbai municipal corporation normally since those dispensaries are free right uh, people should access them they should be extremely overloaded why should there be a private doctor in a in a area where people have challenges of paying for healthcare uh, who is doing very well because of the uh, i think the other factors people say look you know going to the government doctor the government institution waiting in a long line 
sometimes being not treated respectfully. Now, this is something I bring in slowly, but uh, it seems, and I think it is true, that in the government sector, uh, and I worked in the government sector, I trained in the government sector, and I don't say this as an outsider, but we have sort of dehumanized it a little. So, for example, in the OPD, uh, there is a patient. So, the our uh, the, the way it is conducted, you know, so people have questions, even the poorest or the poor have want to know about what's happening to them. But that discussion, that questions, that's explaining is, it's not about time. See, a lot of people will say, oh, but in a government hospital, it's about time. No, it's not about time. I worked in government hospitals. I worked till a few years ago. Uh, three or four uh, lines of explanation uh, as to why somebody needs surgery, why is it important, is not about time. It's partly about, I think it is about class. And I think uh, that's where ordinary people find the private doctor more, uh, actually more friendly. It's a strange thing, but true. So they say, okay, we don't mind paying, but we'd want the doctor to talk to us. Yeah. We want to doc doctor to answer our questions, etc. So it's a it's a so when you compare the two systems in India, it's not just about the monetary factor. Yeah, if otherwise they were equal, uh, logically most people should access the uh, public healthcare system, right? Why should we be? Why should ordinary citizens be willing to spend large amounts of money, right? But I think it is the other factors. The private sector is perceived. Maybe it is partly true to respond immediately. Uh, be a little more uh, individual oriented, friendly. That could be because it's driven by uh, the uh, logic of the profit logic. So there is obviously, you know, you want the patient to be your patient. But friendly, certainly more efficient. There is no question about that. So to go to a private facility, uh, if you're asked to do blood tests. So let me give you this example. So the hospital I was working, the public hospital, the government hospital, we would ask, give a list of tests to the patient. They would be given dates on four different days to do the tests. The x-ray would be a different day. The blood test would be a different day. Now, even the poor, do not want to spend three or four days off work coming to the hospital to do the test. Therefore, if you told them that, look, you can go out, do these tests in one day or one morning, they would jump at it, even at the expense of cost, even at the spending. So this is the, so we have created these two parallel systems where one is uh, efficient, convenient, maybe perceived to be more friendly, and counterposed it with a system which is clearly uh, crowded to an extent perceived as unhygienic, noisy, sometimes rude, um, uh, long waiting lists, etc. Right. So when you counterpose this, uh, you know how how an ordinary ordinary person will. Now, of course, therefore, what happens 
is that the entry into the private sector uh, for ordinary people or even the middle class is is favored they enter the system to access care but the problem is if it becomes something complicated then the bills go up so let's say a patient comes to the casualty of a private hospital uh they will get good treatment uh quick treatment maybe but let's say the person needs surgery or gets needs to be admitted to the critical care there is a huge bill which they get on the third or fourth day and it's a shocking bill yeah and then they don't know what to do and then then the stress then the hostility starts because on for the family they are dealing with two problems at the same time one is the health somebody is unwell and the other is the bill every day they are getting the bills and and the third which is that they perceive that there is no transparency so they ask the uh, doctor or somebody else why is the bill so high and the, very often the answer is well did you not know about this this is a private hospital you came here voluntarily so why are you not now talking about the bill but actually they have not come voluntarily in the sense you know what i'm saying that it's not a voluntary act it's an act of under pressure it's an act of certain perception it's an act of seeking health care uh, it's not as if you know they have gone you know, there's an analogy given but they've gone to two car dealers had taken 3 months to decide which car to buy bought the costlier car and then said why did i buy a car this is not healthcare is not that right so so they have come in distress and now the bill is high and that's what also i brings me to another connect and i've written a lot about this that's what also leads to violence uh the the shocking violence that we see sometimes in indian healthcare there are many reasons i'm not over simplifying it one of the reasons is this so finally somebody dies Uh, a patient passes away unfortunately and the hospital says pay the bill and we will not release the body now i have said this thankfully i work in a hospital where i have been able to convince the management that please do not stop releasing the body uh because somebody has not paid the bill uh by the way there's a bombay high court judgment on that which is which is really good that the high court has clearly said that you cannot but just imagine the impact on the family somebody is dead often the perception is that they they need not have died uh you have a bill of lakhs and finally somebody is telling you that you cannot take the body home till you pay x lakhs uh, of rupees right now and it's a it's a classic setup for uh, anger and anger sometimes boiling over so uh i think this is the this is the cha- and this is the indian private sector i mean again i'm not trying to pin blame on a single factor but again going back to the approach of the medical professionals you know when these violence takes place very often you'll see in public debates uh huge hostility and pushback from the medical professionals uh some of it is you know for public consumption so people say oh patients have become violent nowadays this is this discussion some of my colleagues will say oh everybody is become violent nowadays and i 
have written and have said this much to uh, <coughs> much to the uh, sort of I have received a lot of pushback and I said, you know, where I don't see those violent patients. How is it that in your practice you say that you see violent patients every few days? I think you need to re-examine your practice. But that apart, I think this kind of pushback, putting it back on patients rather than trying to say that what led to it? Can we change few things? Can we, for example, agree that we should not be holding bodies back? That's not happening. Mm. And this hostility is leading to even more hostility. It's an extremely challenging situation. And uh, okay, so there's another response. We should have security in the hospital. There are people who have said, oh, we should have security guards at every level in the hospital, in the intensive care. It's, it's the most ridiculous statement to make in the sense, this is healthcare. This is a healthcare institution. How can you ever have police or security of standing at every level of interaction? No patient or no family member plans the violence, right? Very little of it is planned. There could be stray cases. It's a spontaneous act of uh, anger. It's often just a roughing up. So the doctor says, so, so rude behavior or they say, oh, if you can't afford, you take, take them away. If you can't afford, take the person away. And you're angry and you sort of uh, sort of shout back or hold the collar. Now, that is what it is. So now you can't have a security person next to you. So, uh, by the way, there are hospitals now who employ bouncers and that is uh, another story. But just saying that this is another symptom of the malaise, the uh, violence uh, and no good outlets, alternative, rational, organized outlets. Uh, for people to uh, bring up these issues. So in India's healthcare, if a patient brings up an issue, most often it is dismissed or there are so-called inquiries. Where So, I mean, I just want to say this. There is no understanding in India, purposeful or otherwise, I don't know what it is, of the concept of conflict of care. There's no understanding. We are, it's a blind spot. So in a hospital, if a patient has a complaint, about whatever, three doctors from the hospital or two administrators from the hospital will sit and discuss the complaint, either against themselves or against their colleagues. So there is no concept of understanding that there is huge conflict of interest here. And this happens across the board in committees. Um, I work in transplantation and I've been involved in committees and, you know, policy making, who should get organs, something as important as that. There are four doctors, three of whom work in the private sector who are sitting and deciding that. Now, where is the understanding of at least trying to reduce the conflict of interest? And this is one area where I think we need to... So, very often. And this was an interesting experience. So there was a consumer organization in Mumbai who at a particular phase started a, a parallel system where patients could complain to them and they would send the complaint to a group of doctors. I was part of that group. So I know I saw, I, I opined on many cases. And you know, in about 80 to 90% of the cases, actually the doctors on the panel said, look, there may not be a case here. 
there may not be a strong case and the person withdrew because what they actually wanted was somebody to hear them to say yes we we want to know what happened to you yes there is a that also does not happen and that that can be even more frustrating so i'm just linking the fact so india's uh, india's private care uh is unregulated uh, the us i know there are many challenges but the us has a capacity and i say this slowly and i know there are challenges but has a capacity to uh at least investigate and maybe often bring people to book um i mean that's a capacity that system has that at that point even if it's a so called big doctor they will often uh bring the person to book uh whereas here it all entirely depends on how big you are how connected you are right uh, i mean there's no parallel in there could be parallels in healthcare but i i mean i when i heard about the insider trading and the investigation uh in in you know in the us since you're talking of the comparison into let's say somebody like preet bharara investigating uh rajaratnam i mean insider trading i don't know but i'm not an expert i think insider trading in india is everyday affair uh so you know we don't see that as a contradiction so similarly here in healthcare we don't even see some issues whether it is commission practice you know cut practice uh, we don't see it as a issue of uh, unfair trade practice we don't see it as an issue of um legal illegal practice where i can incentivize a person to send patients to me with money in a non transparent manner uh so maybe that's the difference uh maybe here we have normalized many things uh as kind of inevitable so yes so uh, it is not just privatized but unregulated and normalized uh, uh a lot of things which uh, which are very harmful to ordinary citizens so i know this is again something that people often say that what's the point what's the point of talking about this in the public arena you know well i think the point is that for ordinary citizens uh they need to know because it probably helps them to negotiate uh, healthcare to an extent uh yes there is a challenge here which is that will it further reduce trust in the system because trust is important in healthcare and one recognizes that that uh, you need to put a certain trust on the healthcare system when you access it right uh when you are undergoing let's say an operation you need to trust the surgeon so of course these discussions uh have the potential to undermine trust but on the other hand they have the potential to for individuals to understand what is happening and take corrective measures and uh, uh unless citizens do that or at least they push government to do that self correction uh, for the reasons i shared with you for the conflicts of interest is uh, very unlikely very unlikely mm. yeah i mean about the violence against doctors uh, i i had listened to um, nandita ayer in in one of uh, the podcast episodes uh, the scene and the unseen 
where she took up a medical profession and she was a student and then she started to practice and uh, she saw violence firsthand and that <clears throat> completely traumatized her and she decided to leave the profession completely so i can i can sort of imagine how traumatizing such an experience can be right for for someone and uh, why would they even choose to be in that profession and it can also impact their attitude towards people uh, moving forward so yeah sad state of affairs um, but i think uh, but what is what is i mean just to repeat what is also concerning is how we respond to it and i think that's also equally important individuals of course will be shattered but i'm saying how does the system try and analyze and respond to it yeah 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 i th- i don't think uh, security guards and you know having bouncers is the idea because it makes the place even more unwelcoming right uh you know there should be a certain sense of welcomeness or empathy you know just just that environment and milieu should uh give uh, which it wouldn't if uh, if bouncers and security guards were all over the place um doctor interesting points that you that you bring about uh, the private healthcare in india and uh, i just uh wanted to uh take a look at the other side of it which is the pharma companies uh you, you know uh, doctors are usually um sort of uh lured into prescribing certain drugs by the medical representatives and uh, uh it happens everywhere it's not an india problem i'm i'm sure it happens uh, all over the all over the world but you know with your experience what have been some of the really shady practices i mean when i say shady practices uh when people have crossed the line in luring doctors into prescribing their medicines uh, do you have any examples hmm. yeah so as you say it's a global phenomenon uh but uh, again uh, <clears throat> rest of the globe uh, has tried to try to i don't know how successfully set boundaries in terms of uh the relationship between pharma and the medical profession uh, some countries uh, including the us have fairly uh, sharp uh, boundaries right so uh, having said that of course uh, these boundaries are often circumvented uh i think what could be a little different in india is number one uh the number of brands and combinations that we have humongous and uh, uh, you know that's not my territory but to say that uh, we seem to have a penchant and uh, particularly for combining drugs and globally this is much less so that's one the second big challenge in india is how do we choose a particular brand and what is the role of into inverted commas generics now i don't want to take a deep dive into generics uh, there was a huge controversy a uh, few months ago and i don't know whether any of your guests uh, referred to this controversy but the the new form of the medical council of india the national medical commission um prescribed prescriptions uh, that prescribed that doctors should only use the generic name now this is actually global practice it's nothing very new about it and there was huge pushback from doctors in india to the point that the 
National Medical Commission, which is a statutory body of the government of India, uh, actually has temporarily withdrawn their new uh, ethics guidelines. I, I was a member of one of their committees and I know that it was a pretty extensive process and there was an attempt to um, uh, bring in many areas through that uh, the new guidelines. So, But they threw the baby out with the bathwater and I think it's been currently suspended. I, I suspect uh, it has also got to do with the fact that this is election year and governments don't want to do anything which will antagonize they perceive doctors in india as very influential people they are they are and uh, so they have friends in government and friends with uh, parliamentarians etc uh so that was has been withdrawn but so that's another level, area where i think we are a little peculiar that we uh, prescribe brands we have lots of combinations and uh Boundaries? Well, 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 there are no boundaries. I mean, uh, of course, most of it is the small things, the pen and the stuff like that. Uh, but there are no boundaries. And again, there are two parts to this. One is, okay, uh, there are meetings, for example, uh, where pharma is sponsoring a meeting, so-called educational support. Fair enough, right? Um, the question is conflict of interest and is the conflict of interest disclosed? Now, I'm going to give an example from COVID because I, I just cannot forget it. And I remember it sharply because it was in the peak of COVID. So in the peak of COVID, there were a lot of new drugs or antivirals which were being pushed, right? And partly because there was chaos, uh, there was fear, so, I mean, I can understand companies wanting to get onto the bandwagon partly, wanting to push new drugs. And, you know, the US, you saw that, Remdesivir. A lot of things happened. But here, in there was a prime time television interview by a very well-known journalist of two doctors. Uh, and it may still be up there for somebody to see where there was a trial of a so-called new drug. The trial itself was shabbily done, very limited numbers, very limited numbers, some 12 patients or something. But he interviewed the principal investigators of the trial who spoke glowingly about the drug. And one of them, I think both of them, but one of them certainly was paid by the company as a principal investigator, was an advisor to the company. Now, the way it could have been done is the person interviewing could have said, this person is being paid by the company. Okay, listen to his views. I'm not saying don't listen to their views, but disclosure. So let people interpret what a person is saying uh, with full knowledge of what are his conflicts of interest, right? That doesn't happen here. Now, whether it happens across the world, so there is a big push to disclosing and uh, disclosure is largely followed and there is a lot of consumer resistance to conflicts of interest and, you know, obfuscation. So in the US, for example, uh, uh, ProPublica, which is, uh, which is I, I maybe you have come across their work, so which regularly 
exposes conflicts of interest uh, in the pharma and medical. That does not happen here. So as a result, uh, therefore, uh, new molecules, extremely costly, can be pushed. And of course, there is one more thing in, in, in India and many parts of the developing world, which is that new drugs are exceedingly costly. Uh, cancer drugs, some, some of them very effective. But there is no sense here. It's, it's beginning to happen, but in a very limited way of what is called cost effectiveness. Uh, so when you are, let's say, prescribing a drug, which is a cancer drug, which is used for, let's say, advanced cancers, right? Yes, there are some medications which add a few months to life. Um, there is an individual patient who may choose to say that I want to take the medication. I want to live for three more months or six more months. I mean, that's everybody's right. Why not? But the question is, uh, these drugs are pushed by the industry through doctors, through doctors associations as life-saving drugs. Right? So, the person is paying sometimes lakhs of rupees for a drug which has either limited value or has limited impact, but is usually costly. Right? So, there is no complete disclosure. So, I think besides the fact that there is the relationship between pharma and uh, the medical profession, obviously, uh, there is lots of boundaries crossed. And I don't even want to talk to you about some of them because it's completely embarrassing things like people, it's not even minor, it's it's like people being given cars and all that, you know, and it's uh, people having their children's birthday parties sponsored by pharma, etc. But, you know, this is again, as I said, you know, the whole Sackler story in the, in the US and, you know, so uh, we know that they have taken it to a fine art and the question I want to address is, how are we as uh, professionals in India and our professional bodies, how do we respond? Uh, and I'm talking of big organizations, the Indian Medical Association, the Associations of Physicians of India. How are we responding? This is not about morality. This is, you know, there's an interesting... So this is, okay, morally people say, you know, oh, but the moral fiber is down. So this is not about morality. If you leave it to individual morality, we have lost the battle. I think this is about professionalism. Professionalism. This is about collective thinking in the interests of our patients, right? And that is where I think the spectacular failure, if you ask me, in India, is of professional organizations to deal with these issues, uh, come out with their own set of guidelines and code. And peer pressure is extremely important. In many countries, that's what works. No doctor wants to be seen to be crossing boundaries if their peers will not like it. Here, unfortunately, if a doctor organizes a big conference where everybody is entertained at the cost of pharma, actually that doctor's image in the profession goes up a few notches because he because of hospitality offered by that person. Oh, what a lovely meal. What a lovely entertainment program, etc., etc. Yeah. Without thinking, what, what does this mean? And uh, so, you know, 
it's the the relationship is a old challenge by the way sections of pharma are very uncomfortable with this i mean most of them of course want to influence doctors but they are uncomfortable because some of them actually use this term with me senior people they say we are being extorted we are being extorted we are told that you better support this meeting otherwise we'll stop we will send a a message a whatsapp group that will stop prescribing your products etc etc it's become like so, a cartel kind of absolutely that's the term. it's it's a cartelization and it's very deep now there is also a link to hospitals uh which is another story but which is a very important story so you walk into a hospital in india and you uh are admitted you are prescribed let's say an antibiotic a costly antibiotic right so most hospitals in india at least the big hospitals will not allow you to buy a drug from outside the the drug has to be bought from the hospital pharmacy even if it's the same brand everything same brand the same drug 2 minutes away outside the hospital in the chemist but you have to buy it from the hospital now we must understand this so why is it so so the biggest money spinner for hospitals is the pharmacy because and this is a game which it's not about hospitals it's a game being played between pharma and hospitals so pharma gives the drugs maybe in bulk to the hospital at a much lower cost the much lower cost than the mrp so when you see the mrp that's not what the hospital has bought it for right just to interrupt you there uh, what is the hospital's justification uh, you know let's say i am a patient or i am the the family of a patient and the hospital says that you have to buy drugs from our pharmacy uh, what is their justification like why do they want you to do that right so that's a yeah, important question so first of all you are in my hospital as a patient you better follow the rules that is one subtle justification but that's the ideology right secondly uh this is the this is the obfuscation i think that look we want to ensure quality so we will not give you drugs which are uh, of lower quality now that's where the obfuscation is because in india cost does not equate quality right uh there are drugs uh, injections which are one third the cost from reputed companies right from very high quality medicines because the original molecule is costly and now you know the whole indian health, uh, pharma industry has made many drugs of good quality which are significantly cheaper so they assure quality uh but again i am coming back to that as a as a doctor in that hospital am i not interested that my the patient who's admitted under me uh gets treatment at a lower cost uh and the cost differences can be substantial over a period of time yeah also okay you do this you tell me that you have to buy medicines from only from the hospital you tell me that i can't buy from outside why are you not telling me that there are even three brands in the hospital one of which is cheaper there is no transparency there okay so therefore uh it's very clear that it's a it's a cash cow 
is very clearly a cash cow and now my again my question is who is going to change this who is going to question this in my view consumer resistance as i said is very low and naturally low at the end of their hospitalization i, I mean for me it's a every every week i face this a patient comes to you with a huge bill and it's sometimes astronomical unfortunately there has been some complication they will start looking through the bill and they are aghast now they look at the costs say doctor the same medicine i asked outside in the chemist is one third the cost or one fourth the cost or half the cost or there is another equivalent which is half the cost why is the hospital charge me this and now i can have two approaches as a doctor one is i can say look don't ask me that's not my problem right but how can i say that is is a patient who's come to me so i have to give an explanation and this is where i think the doctors will have to try and say look you know either ask the right person or this is not of my doing i do not agree i sometimes say i do not agree right what i also do and thankfully the hospital i currently work in allows me to do it is to say that please allow this patient to buy drugs from outside so they do that yeah but let's understand what this is all about so every opportunity during the hospitalization uh, is used to make money now one of the questions is do you do i have anything against making money well that's a separate discussion right uh we can have a discussion about that making money in healthcare but certainly is there transparency in the process is the person being given a choice are you open about it are you clearly stating that a large part of your income is through uh, the drugs that you are there in your pharmacy and that there are three drugs of three different costs and that the patient has a choice so this is where it is so even if you are making money fair enough make it transparently uh and let the consumer it's a horrible word to use in healthcare but uh, let the person also have their say so i think this is where probably we are a little different and i come back to what i said earlier on so it's not just about a privatized system it's about a unregulated system an opaque system and about a system which has actually unfair trade practices there are trade practices which could be fair but the commission system for example which is completely opaque uh is unfair to the person uh okay you can have a transparent system of splitting fees or you know uh, officially giving what is called uh, all sorts of sophisticated terminology so i think that is what it is and uh, that's where i think there's urgent need for reform and i think the state is beginning to understand this because they they get pushed back right so they try to control but they are half hearted about it very half hearted about it and i say this publicly because i mean some of us have been involved in uh, regulatory work uh but there is huge pushback from the medical profession but that's not the point the point is as i gave you the example of the uh national medical commissions uh ethics guidelines which were developed over two years they have been withdrawn so the ability of the medical profession to stop regulation is also worrying and uh that is something that citizens should take note of and 
you know, uh, push government to, to intervene. Uh, only in COVID we saw that streak. I mean, they had to respond because, you know, they knew it's a crisis of government. There also there was challenges, but yes, they did. I, I know in Maharashtra, they did respond, capped fees, etc. But what about normal situations, you know, where, you know, somebody walks into a hospital with an emergency? What happened? You know, it's very sad. And this is, again, uh, something that if you have family, friends, they will tell you. Then Indian cities, big Indian cities, if you have an accident, if that accident happens in front of a big private hospital, often the police will take you 20 minutes away to a public hospital. So they are worried that how can we enter this hospital? What will happen? Where every Supreme, the Supreme Court has judged this, that no emergency can be turned away for the sake of money, for the sake of uh, the bill. But people don't enter because they're scared. Uh, and if they enter, very often, not always, there are exceptions, of course, and there are good exceptions, but otherwise, they are told that, look, you know, you will not be able to afford this hospital. Maybe they give some emergency care and quickly shift the person. So I think uh, this is where the state has to step in, uh, which has not happened in a big way. Yeah. Although the many uh, medical professionals in India seem to think that their independence to practice is under threat. That's what they seem to think without realizing that actually we are the least regulated. Um, unless you see that system closely or work in that system. Uh, I mean, for example, in most, uh, I worked in hospitals in, of course, in, in the UK, but I've also uh, fairly closely seen hospitals in other countries. You cannot prescribe a drug that you want to, just because you want to prescribe it. Antibiotics. What is fueling the antibiotic resistance crisis in India? South Asia and India has the highest levels. Because I can prescribe. You walk into my clinic and you have a cough, I can prescribe an antibiotic to you. Nobody is asking, asking me why, uh, why, you know, for a viral fever, the prescriptions during COVID, for example. So this feeling that we are doctors and therefore we have a right to do what we wish is is untenable anywhere in the world and i think it should be untenable it should not it should not be that way even in 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 india uh rational practice based on evidence uh our participation in uh, national priorities with its tb where i i cannot be just giving a dose of tb drugs that i want to right, uh, where I need to be monitored, is something which uh, is a collective good. And um, unfortunately, currently the profession is very hostile to all this, but it needs to be slowly changed. Yeah, looks like uh, the profit from pharmacy makes up for a good chunk of the overall profit that a hospital makes, right? Uh, they get uh, medicines at a very discounted price and uh, they get to sell it at uh, MSRP or MRP, which is which is quite crazy. Yeah. Uh, doctor, I would like to move 
a little bit on to um, uh, transplantation and uh, medical tourism and issues with uh, uh, transplantation in India. Uh, I read a very interesting statistic that uh, women form the majority of uh, living organ donors. And uh, uh, I, I wanted to understand, is it because of, you know, societal expectations and um, sort of uh, the expectation that the, the woman has to sacrifice for the man uh, and so on? What have been some of your observations in that area? Yeah, yeah. So I recently actually uh, did a piece on on this, uh, uh, looking at, uh, trying to look at, uh, again, what is uh, the reality and what is driving it. See, there are there is outrage on the fact that women seem to be donating more than men. It's not women, but often it is wives. So there is a difference, right? And I think in kidney transplantation in India, it is true uh, that women kidney don live donors very often are women and very often are wives. For that matter, occasionally the marriage is done uh, so that the wife can be a donor. Because this is, this is related to the Indian law. The Indian law says that if you have a close relative, so the close relative is defined as father, mother, sister, brother, son, daughter, grandparents, uh, and spouse, then you don't need any special permissions uh, the the donation is relatively uh, quick in terms of the paperwork and the permissions. If it is something somebody beyond that, then you need a special kind of committee, etc. Where does this come from? So we need to first understand why is, first of all, this law there. So in the 80s and 70s in India, kidney transplantation was a free-for-all where organs were being bought. In the city of Mumbai, uh, hospitals were flooded with patients from the Middle East who would come here. Uh, there would be agents who would pick up somebody and say that we are willing to offer you X amount of money, lakhs uh, money, lakhs of rupees. They would be brought in, young people. Uh, the kidney would be removed and would be transplanted into uh, some wealthy person, often from the Middle East. So there were scandals and obviously there was uh, a genuine outrage and the government decided to step in. So there was a law which came in and the law primarily came in because of this, uh, these scandals and this history. So this is what is medical on, tourism, right? Uh, no, I, I'll come to that in a minute. Uh, what is, uh, so what, what constitutes medical tourism and there could be various types of medical tourism. But that 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 stage, it was just people walking in uh, from other countries to buy kidneys. Now, that is really not medical tourism, but we'll come to that. Uh, so, uh, this law said that we will only allow uh, donation for under circumstances where the donor is donating under for altruistic reasons. Now, I would be the first to admit that of course, even in close relations, you could you could have a little push, a little, even money exchanging hands. I mean, of course, but that was the logic. Now, therefore, the spouse was a donor who was legitimately allowed. Now, therefore, if you make that connect, a lot of wives were donating. Now, 
you can have two views on that. The one is the benign view or the uh, less, uh, you can say, uh, uh, a more benevolent view, which is that wives are, of course, uh, look after families, you know, women have, there's the construct that women, their instincts are more whatever, you know. It's uh, it's also called benevolent sexism. There. Yeah, yeah, benevolent yeah. sexism. But yeah, so women has to cook, etc. So, yes, yeah, so I think it's that. The second view, and which is, I think, very clear to me, is that uh, the woman often is... Uh, I won't, I'm not saying when we use the word coercion, we're not, we're not necessarily talking of they take them dragging and kicking to the operation table, but that, you know, that that it is your duty, job, etc. Yeah, that is coercion. There is no question. Subtle, familial, societal, uh, their role. Now again, uh, there is a question to this, which is that how should we respond as a transplant? So I'm a transplant surgeon. Uh, I have interacted with families, although I wasn't involved more in liver than kidney. So how do we respond? Now, again, you we can take a bystander role, which is historically what medical professionals in India have unfortunately done. And I will take you back to two other similar situations. Not exactly the same, but similar. One was female feticide. So, parents would come, meaning the mother and father, and would come to the doctor and say, doctor, we want to identify the sex of the fetus because we don't want a girl child. Now, you can say, okay, fair enough, I'm offering a service. I do it, tell you the sex of the child. And okay, you want to abort, I abort. It's my job. And I remember doctors saying that, look, we should do this because it will contribute to family planning. Because that time we were on a family planning high in India, right? Every problem of India was related, was connected to population. Even now, people talk like that, but it's much less now. But that time, oh, our problem is population, right? So therefore, you they don't want a female child. So that is one. The other area where we saw that women kind of, it was assumed that it is a woman's responsibility was, again, in family planning, sterilization. At one stage, it was women who were getting sterilized. Uh, it was their responsibility uh, to sort of undergo the, the operation and fairly coercive. I worked in a medical college and hospital in Mumbai as a student where the woman was told that if you have to register in this hospital uh, and if you have a second baby, second delivery, the only reason we will deliver you here is if you allow us, if you agree for a, a, a sterilization procedure after the delivery. Otherwise, we will not deliver. So that kind of thing. So I'm saying that, that there has been a bias against the girl, child, women and I think here, to an extent, this is how many people look at it. That's not their, our job. So this is the one of the aberrations. But you know, I think it brings me to a larger point, which is not related to the only to the gender issue. So when you have living donor transplantation, and today we have a lot of uh, living donor transplantation in India. So a live uh, relative is donating either one kidney or part of the liver. Both are uh, formidable operations 
certainly the liver, which is a big operation for the daughter. We must first of all understand that it's not some minor procedure, which both short-term and long-term risks. So therefore, uh, when we as transplant surgeons say that that is a procedural thing, I have nothing to do with it, right? It's not just about the woman being coerced. It's also about what is, where do we stand on coercion in general of the donor. Intra-family coercion, out-of-family coercion. By the way, in India, it was pretty common and still occasionally happens that the driver donates to the owner whose car he, he drives. Oh, yeah, yeah. And... Uh, you know, when asked, they have said that, oh, the driver is working for 25 years, so the driver feels a lot of affection for the owner. Uh, I don't know whether you read Arvind Nadiga's novel, The White Tiger, and you know, the book, it's very interesting. But I'm saying that drivers, maids, so where do we stand on this? Uh, do we like this idea? If not, should we be intervening? Right. So when I wrote in response to this uh, just a few days ago, one of the things I said was that as a transplant surgeon or a physician, you can always take the donor, uh, talk to the donor privately. We have done that and say, look, if there is coercion, I, as your transplant doctor, am willing to give you a medical reason so that you cannot donate, so that you don't face the wrath of your family. Now, this is a practice that is followed in some countries, right? Because see, for the woman to tell her husband or in-laws or larger family that I don't want to donate, right, uh, is difficult. It's huge pressure. By the way, women who whose husbands, are, I mean, I'm not trying to say we should not treat alcoholic liver disease, but whose husbands are alcoholic, liver disease patients, the women wives donate. Uh, so, so this is what can be done. And when you do it, you and we I have faced this and I've written about that, that there is small section, I'm not saying the majority, who will tell you in private that, look, doctor, please do that. I do not want to donate. Right? So again, it is about how we respond. Uh, yes, we are torn between saving the life of the husband or the male member. In kidney, it's not saving life, but enhancing the life because they go off dialysis. In liver, it is saving life. But also about the rights of the donor. Is it a voluntary act? And transplantation is full of such challenges. And I think what is happening is that, see, transplantation came to India uh, years ago, but has shot up in the last a uh, decade or so. And we must acknowledge that a lot of doctors trained in transplantation in the West or in abroad and came back and now are offering that service. And in a sense, it has opened up many possibilities. So heart transplants are being done, liver transplants are being done, etc. So, for example, 20 years back, uh, Indian citizens could not access these transplants. So in that sense, we have moved ahead. Yeah. And I think there's fair amount of technical expertise. Uh, so I think that's 
that must be acknowledged but having said that what has happened is that transplantation has come into a healthcare system which is highly privatized which is unregulated and has conflict of interest so therefore the same factors which we have been talking about they operate in transplant which makes it where the stakes are even higher where the costs are even higher so for example uh in a in the transplant the costs are humongous for the patient and if the transplant is done for the wrong indication because again there is a push for numbers and there is a recurrence of the disease within a let's say 6 months uh, a family feels cheated because they have spent astronomical sums and the the disease is back in the transplanted organ tumors etc or for that matter when it comes to allocation of organs so now that is another big challenge and big area so we have disease donation so individuals who either in their lifetime have committed to donating or their family members after the death of an individual somebody something called brain death are committing to donate organs now why are they committing to donate organs or why are they willing to donate organs as a purely as a altruistic public good right just think about it that somebody is dead the close family member in moment of intense grief is willing to donate organs and it's it's a it's an amazing act i when i came back from the uk and we started uh promoting the idea of uh, donation in india uh after death or after brain death my initial thought was that nobody will agree but i am surprised i was surprised and very ordinary people uh, parents are donating the organs of their small kids who have died now but they're donating it as a public good right so what should be ideally happening that the organ should go to the person who is the most needy that is the global principle that yeah now if we examine india currently so there are structures there are systems but unfortunately again 90% if not 95% of transplants are being done in the private sector now that is a bit of a discussion as to why the public sector cannot develop it we, we can we can address that but however therefore the organ often goes to the private sector right because they are the ones who have the capacity and they are the ones who can bear the costs but what it means therefore that a public good uh of a donated organ is going largely to private interests and also because the hospital has it's highly monetized they are under pressure often to give it to the patient who is paying the most now i say this with uh partly with caution because yes there is our monitoring systems but i say this also as somebody who has worked in the system who has seen it very closely that even for the transplant team there is a pressure to give the organ to the person who is who can afford it or who can pay the maximum money uh because it's clearly a profit driven enterprise uh so that's the distortion having said that yes it is true that transplantation in india has advanced a lot 
for a upper middle class person a well to do person today there is a possibility of getting transplantation if they uh, they need it but that's not the same as a, a national transplant program which goes to which essentially is based on not on your ability to spend but your ability of need whether you need a transplant yeah and i gave you the example of the nhs now of course going back again and again to the nhs may sound a little uh, uh, repetitive but in the uk you know i i we ha have taken part in the transplant of a of a a student who was in the uk on a student visa temporarily who came down with liver failure and the person was transplanted no questions asked from another country the person was from another country because they so that is the system there right so that is the challenge in transplantation and why is transplantation sort of a test case partly for me because i was trained as a transplant surgeon so i've seen it at close quarters but i think it's a test case also because we want ordinary citizens to donate organs otherwise it won't work but if they do not have trust in the system if they cannot see the system as transparent as justice based or just they will not donate organs i mean any study across the world of of countries who have large number of donations after death after brain death will tell you that it is because people have trust in the healthcare system uh so i think that's how it is connected now i will come to uh, something you raised about medical tourism because transplantation is one area where there is a lot of now uh, medical tourism where foreigners come to india for treatment now medical tourism is a big industry and i think let's accept that it is being driven largely or partly by the fact there are many countries where which do not have the uh, necessary wherewithal or the facilities to do that so do a procedure so for example liver transplantation kidney transplantation we get lots of patients from africa which is underserved which does not have the facilities so people will travel look everybody wants to get everybody wants to live wants to get better so uh, people travel for healthcare so you can't stop that but then the question there are two three questions that arise from that one is of course if people are traveling what impact so people traveling to india or any country accessing care in the private hospitals uh what is the impact on local patients because typically people who come from foreign countries will pay more typically so the question is does it is it making an impact on the image of the procedure on the priority of the of the hospital and the team so that is one question the other question of course is a lot of this travel now when i say a lot i am not saying the majority is essentially commercial travel where even the donor so a person comes for a transplant they get their own donor from so called family member or so called relative we have no way to verify that yeah sometimes the embassies give certificates but uh who so it may be a cover for paid donation now 
there is a le another level of debate here which i currently don't want to get into but yes i mean i am acknowledging that uh, that that could be a level of debate where there is so there will be people who say what is wrong with paid donation after all the person is getting an organ removed and there is actually a, a school in philosophy and ethics and some of them are quite active in the us now who say that we have a market for everything so why not a market for organs but let it be a transparent market let it be a fair market even markets need to be fair so yes we can buy organs we can rent booms we can uh, uh, but but let it be fair so that's a different level of discussion and uh, but i'm saying that these are the challenges when you have medical tourism finally of course see i i find it very odd that you know i'll pose it to you that we have huge challenges for our own people in terms of accessing care day to day care huge challenges of delivering high end care to our citizens right now why is that is so what is this whole focus on medical tourism i mean to use a recent sort of trope this is not nationalism for sure right okay this is making in make bringing in revenue that's one argument the government makes but are you using that revenue for the for improving the healthcare of our people i mean there is a argument which says that we can play robin hood whereas the money that you get from the revenue you use it but then then demonstrate so even hospitals can do that they can say look the money that we get from medical tourism we will set apart a section for subsidizing the treatment of now some of them actually say that if we do that but it needs to be more transparent it needs to be proven better if at all that is the argument yeah otherwise essentially what we are saying is that this is all about money and that the needs of our people are can wait but currently our priorities because i have invested in a hospital i need quick money back so i will focus on medical tourism and uh, sort of the state will say okay it's a great idea etc etc so I, i think it's a question of also state policy uh, and what are our priorities i mean you have these two parallel things which are very interesting that there are individuals in india who have uh, completely gone and worked in highly underserved areas uh, set up hospitals set up healthcare systems because it's so underserved right cancer care uh and then there are these entrepreneurial uh doctors who setting up these posh hospitals uh with the idea that they will attract people from across the world i mean so just just look at this strange uh, sort of coexistence uh, i guess it's a sign of the times and you know obviously but it's 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 strange but what is even stranger is that it seems to me that the state in india the government seems to feel very highly about individuals who have built these big hospitals are and are into medical tourism because they are the ones who are in, who get a seat at the table so when uh, the american president uh, visited obama visited india and they, they, he was introduced to the 
leaders of healthcare. So in line were some of the owners of hospital, private hospital chains to meet him. Right? In my view, fair enough. Maybe they could also be there, but the leaders of healthcare should have been people standing there, should have been people who have, you know, set up large rural projects or who have, you know, uh, engaged with policies, changed policies, uh, maybe looked at people who have worked in rural Tamil Nadu and have changed the healthcare system. So, what do we reward is also an important question, right? Uh, what does the system reward? And currently, it seems to us that, and, and again, I come back to conflict of interest. If you have healthcare chain owners who are in policy-making bodies, what is the chance that they will tweak policy for their own good? It's a high chance. I mean, they, they, are, they want to survive. So they will impact on policy. Uh, it's a, it's a no-brainer, actually, right? And therefore, the question for the government, for Niti Aayog, for uh, the uh, Medical Council, the National Medical Commission, the Health Ministry is, who is guiding you? What are their interests? And what are your interests? And if your interests are aligned with the interests of people, is there a conflict of interest? Is what you have to see. Otherwise, you will have uh, the pharma industry advising you on how to do pharma policy. You know, uh, so I think that's the conflict of interest issue, which, you know, I, uh, I I said right at the outset that we don't seem to even understand that for in public policy, you need to look at this. very, Or maybe we, we understand, but we do not have the courage or we do not have the interest to change it. Either of the two, you know, even, even, you know, the advanced uh, privatized, uh, healthcare, market-based healthcare, right? US care, yeah. Uh, needs to have transparency, needs to have clear demarcation of conflicts of interest for it to be viable and survive and, you know, have some levels of trust. Uh, even in, you know, in, you know, the trust, antitrust cases, which is now involving uh, software, large software companies, right? Uh, so healthcare is even stronger levels of trust are needed and uh, stronger levels of uh, monitoring are needed. Hmm. You know? Yeah, I think doctor, you answered so many questions uh, that I wanted to ask. And uh, before we end this podcast, I just want to touch uh, on on one one specific thing that you mentioned is that I don't think a lot of people are uh, hesitant to donate their organs or their own organs or their loved ones' organs. And uh, there seems to be um, a, a debate on who is the most needy. And it seems like uh, right now, whoever has more money is is more needy. And, and that's how the transplantation is done. And you also mentioned about uh, like a na national transplant scheme. Uh, uh, can you tell me about how you sort of uh, uh, you know dream about uh, a very fair system uh, of organ organ transplants and and how does someone decide who is the most needy? Right. So that's of course a little a challenging question. The, I'll tell you the challenge in India is that there is 
structural inequity, right? I call it, I have recently written somewhere saying that it's, we have transparency in India. We are transparently inequitable. So you can have transparency in inequity, right? And happily live with it. But I think uh, what as a country we need to look at is number one, the distortion that it's become a pure private sector activity. Any government which wants to take this forward can establish uh, transplant units. There's no short dearth of money, I think. There's no dearth of expertise. Transplant units in all the large cities in large public hospitals. So that's point number one. Point number two, if if we feel there is still a discrepancy between the imbalance between the private and the public sector. Uh, one of the things that governments can do, and they're well within their rights to do it, is to actually push the private sector to deliver the transplants either at a lower cost or a part of the transplants to be made done absolutely free of cost at a very low cost. And I'll tell you the rationale for this. The rationale for this is like this. So people say, but why should a private hospital uh, serve the public, right? They're, it's their own money. They have put in money. How can you force them? So let's remember a few things. Number one, many of the, or most of the doctors working in these hospitals are trained in public medical colleges, which means the taxpayers' money is being used to train them. Medical colleges in India are heavily subsidized by taxpayer money. Number two, many of these hospitals get subsidies because they are a hospital. Land, electricity, etc. So they are being supported partly by public money. And this is a truth which people need to understand that for a private sector hospital to say, I am not bound to do charity. Well, then you also don't take charity from the state, right? So that is point number two. The third thing, of course, specific to transplantation is when you want people to donate organs, right? You want ordinary people to donate organs, right? You go out in the public and conduct a campaign. Now, they should give you, but when it comes to receiving, you will be selective. Now, that's not on. That that's that's intuitively is unfair and people are not stupid right? They understand, right? And therefore, at some point, they will question this. That It's like, okay, you want me to donate blood. Now, when I need blood, are you going to ensure that I get it? Or my family member needs blood? If you are going to charge the blood bottle heavily, then why should I donate to you for, uh, for no, no charge? Then you take my blood, pay me, and then when I need it, I will pay to you. So I think that is the understanding in voluntary donation of whether it is blood, whether it is... Uh... Now, as I said, there is an ideological challenge there, which is that why are you insulating transplantation from market, market principles? Now, that's a different discussion. I am having to willing to have that discussion to the people who want to, with, with the people who want to do that. Uh, but I'm just saying that that is the challenge and it is for the state. But again, just before we conclude, so what is the state? Who is the state? We I referred to this entity called the state in my responses. So who is the state? How does the state behave? The state is behaving uh, in the response to what they perceive as either what people accept or people tolerate 
or the state behaves under pressure. So if there is no pressure from people for the state to behave in a more fair manner, to intervene, they may not. They may not. Uh, they have largely, those who are part of the senior state apparatus have sorted it out for themselves, right? It's like doctors have sorted it out. They think that if they need an organ, they will get it. Yeah. But so there has to be pressure and also an an end. So I, I, I know it's a very loaded term and I'm not saying that, uh, you know, one needs to always talk about very in a very loaded terms. But you see, what should an enlightened medical profession do? I think that is the question. Just do our job and go home or say, no, we, we want to improve access for our people. We want to intervene. We want to give our inputs to make it more fair. And in transplantation, that is a no-brainer that if you don't make it more fair, don't make people feel a part of the system, they will not donate all it. So I think that's, that's kind of where it comes from. Uh, and therefore, I think there is a question of who will bell the cat, uh, who will change things, or will it? Is it just a matter of uh, <laughs> sort of time? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I hope that it is not just about time, because if it is just about things changing with time, then I don't know. But if if there are forces which are pushing to change it. Uh, and we are beginning to see pushback. We are beginning to see pushback from patients, from professional patient organizations. I would say even pushback from governments. More and more governments in India are attempting to regulate things. But we need to remove all the other cobwebs that we have right now, right? We have a lot of cobwebs, mental cobwebs. Uh, we need to move to healthcare as one of the chief main areas of uh, intervention. Because, you know, if we end up being the sort of so-called cradle of civilization, whatever that means, but our healthcare is in shambles. What does that mean? You know, uh, what does it mean that we are slowly sliding below Bangladesh in terms of our health indicators, right? Uh, so I think it comes from there that we, if we are really a world power, uh, a, a world power is, is generally looks after the healthcare of its. Uh, ordinary citizens, at least don't doesn't allow them to die from preventable diseases. So if we approach it from that construct, then maybe we will do more. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it looks like, uh, you know, if you want to be a Vishwaguru, you have to be Vishwaguru in healthcare as well. And uh, and to, to, to your point about uh, government or the state intervening with uh, private hospitals, uh, looks like the big brother can <laughs> sort of uh, intervene and uh, because of the all the subsidies and, and the educate, you know, the government or the state giving heavy subsidies to education. So it looks like uh, there is some possibility there and uh, uh, definitely it will be nice if there is a national transplant scheme uh, implemented and the deserving people get uh, the, the right. Uh, so... Yeah, thank you so much, Doctor uh, Nagral. I think I think it was a fantastic discussion. I learned a lot, and I'm pretty sure the listeners will learn a lot. So thank you so much for um, spending two hours of your valuable time. I know we went a little over, but uh, but yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, Bala. I think it was a great talking to you, and uh, thank you very much for this opportunity. <laughs>